Hi, I'm Stephanie Lemek, and this is Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. I am super excited to have my friend Anessa Fike joining us today to talk about her amazing career and the amazing work she is doing, especially when it comes to changing up the future of work. And she doesn't like that term, and she's going to tell you why <laughs> <laughs> probably pretty soon as well. Um, so I always like to let folks introduce themselves. So Anessa, I would love to have you introduce yourself to our listeners. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, friend. I really love every time we get to talk, whether it is recorded or not recorded. I enjoy it every time. So thank you for welcoming me onto the podcast today. And yeah, so about me, I uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I have been in the HR people and talent space for about 15 years. I was a journalist before uh, falling into that space. And I have loved it ever since. It has now been my, my passion as well as my work, which I'm really lucky to have that be one in the same. And I have seen a lot of things over the years. So I've been fractional, a fractional CPO, a fractional VP of people, a fractional head of talent, um, a fractional head of people. And I've worked with more than 120 organizations around the world in 30 plus countries over the last decade. So have really, you know, seen various organizations in various stages. And with that, um, I am recently an author of a new book. It's called The Revolution of Work, Fuck the Patriarchy and the Workplace It Built, because a lot of what is broken today is built on things that were put in place to serve a certain demographic of people. So all of those experiences led me to write the book. And um, I'm excited to talk about all of that today. I'm also a wife and a mom. I um, am really passionate and try to be really a really fierce ally for those that don't look like me. Um, so hopefully that's kind of what we get to get into today a little bit. I am so excited. Yes, we are getting into it. And Every time we have a conversation, I love it. It gets spicy. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to another spicy conversation. And I think it's so important, you know, talking about, you know, fuck the patriarchy, fuck yeah. the systems that have been built. I mean, you've, I can't think of someone who's seen such a great example of what corporate America is doing right and all of the things mm -hmm. that's going wrong. When we look at your fractional experience, you know, I've, I've done the HR thing for, you know, 15 years as well and mm -hmm. not nearly as many organizations, but that internal, like yeah. seeing the sausage get made oh, yeah. for lack of better term, it is really it can be really disheartening. Yes. Um, and and I found, for, yeah. And I, I found for me, um, you know, that's part of the reason, you know, I, I do the work I do with the Moon to Workforce, but also part of the reason I took a step outside of, you know, in-house corporate HR work because holy crap, there's yeah. a lot that's really, really broken. And as much as most people see, there's a lot that folks don't see about yeah. how, you know, the workplace operates. And I'd, I'd love to share, kind of have you share, you know, how would you change or how would you kind of completely reshape the workplace if it's up to you? And right. I think it's important to remember it, it is up to us. And yes. we'll talk more about that. Yes, yes. So I will say first that it's 
For me, the book writing was a little cathartic, right? It was like, I've got to get some of this stuff out. But also like, I keep seeing these trends and how are more people not seeing these things? And what I found in terms of beta readers, in terms of book reviewers of the book, was that a lot of people came back to me and said, oh my gosh, I feel so seen. I feel validated. I don't feel like you know, you gaslit us. I feel like you really see what's happening in the day to day. And I think for so long, people may have seen it and then been gaslit to then make themselves feel like, oh, maybe this isn't a thing, or maybe I'm just seeing this and I'm not, this isn't reality. And the first step towards making change is really noticing that there is something broken. There is a problem, naming that problem, figuring out where the root of that problem is that root cause, and then figuring out from that root cause, how do you move forward to make it better? And for me, when I started to really dial into all of the experiences I have had in working with teams, leading teams, working with executive teams and boards, what were the common factors? And it was like, why is this set up in this way? Why is there a refusal to change? Why is this happening? Why is this broken? And it all came back to It's that way because there's a certain amount and number of people that want to keep it that way because changing it means that they no longer have power, that they no longer have this institutionalized and sort of like supremacist rigid system in place that may not benefit them as much or that they foresee could not benefit them as much. And they may be completely wrong about that. So I really wanted to dial into like how, how everything went back to those points. Hence the name of, you know, the subtitle of the book, Fuck the Patriarchy in the Workplace It Built. Because it really was, if we think back, right, to founding farmers or founding farmers, founding fathers. And we talked about this a little bit on a previous podcast. But if we think way back to when our country was even started, it was set up by white men, right? Work was set up by white men. So it really is set up. And we still do things, if you think about it, we still do things today that they started then. And that makes no sense. So so as we're thinking about it, it's just like, I had to set the tone first, right? For me, it's that point around what, how do I change it? How do we change this? How, what do we do? Right. And I started to think, and I started to talk to friends um, and colleagues, and even my husband, who's in the HR space as well. And I was like, how do we, how do we come together to create this force where we can make meaningful change with a lot of voices at the table, voices that haven't always been at the table, been asked to the table, been welcomed at the table. How do we make this move forward in a way that works for more humans, right? And the question and the the thought that I kept coming back to is, how do I make that impact as one person? How do I create a 10X, 100X, a million X of thinking about this in that way that we can change work moving forward. And so the book is part of that. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's it's spurring this movement, this new thought process around what work could be. And I offer, I think there are 20 plus suggestions in the book of places to start towards the end of the book. But all it really comes down to is honestly deconstructing the way that work sits today, starting to take those little boxes that we put everything in 
and you know, just like a just like a cardboard box, flattening them and throwing them away. And then if we start to just take all of those boxes down and say, okay, what are we actually starting with? What do we need in place for work to succeed? How can we build this in a way that actually works with us as humans instead of against us? How do we work this in a way where it's actually helpful and work doesn't feel like this huge anxiety, stress-ridden thing on all of us? And if we start to think about that in that way, we can start to then rebuild the building blocks of a better workforce and a better way for so many more humans. And so what I would encourage everyone to do is just start to ask why. Why are things in place? Why do we do it this way? Why have we always done it this way? Which, by the way, I don't even like that phrase anyway. And if anyone ever says it, I'm like, that's the first thing we're going to change. But ask why. A lot of times I found in HR, especially if we're in the space for a while and we have a lot of stuff on our shoulders, we all do. We've all been there. Tons of stuff on our plates. We don't always have time to even look, you know, pop our heads above water, let alone ask why. And I ask people to kind of like stop, pull your head above water and look around and say, why do I continue to do this thing that makes no sense to me? And if it makes no sense to me, it is probably there's probably a real possibility. It doesn't make sense to a lot of people. It's so interesting. Like how many times? throughout my career, have I heard, well, we've always done it that way, or, Mm -hmm. oh, that won't work. We can't do that. And it's so infuriating. And I think it's when we think of the workplace, when we think of environment systems as these, you know, metal boxes that can't possibly be changed, and instead think of them as, you know, cardboard boxes, flatten them, throw them out, Mm -hmm. get rid of them. Let's move forward with something new. And, you know, what's so important to me is for so many, work is a space of challenge, Mm -hmm. of, you know, hardship, of feeling marginalized, of feeling sometimes even traumatized. Yeah. And work is actually really important to us as human beings. Mm -hmm. Being able to contribute our strengths, our abilities to, you know, grow, to feel empowered, to build community. Um, You know, oftentimes when I talk about trauma-informed workplaces, I say, you know, the workplace should support all of us, but also it can be this really amazing tool for someone on a journey of, you know, recovering from a traumatic experience because of those things that can provide community, mm-hmm. empowerment, trust, security. But so oftentimes the workplaces we end up in are not doing that. And so I love the idea of rebuild it, make it something that works for all of us and see how much it can contribute to society at large. I also think like I am like constantly like in the background of every article about like layoffs. So, uh, oh, you're not going to have a job, like the clickbaity, like Mm -hmm. fear mongering articles about the workplace, because like, spoiler alert, like every HR person paying attention, everyone paying attention will tell you the workforce is shrinking. Yeah. And I know no one's talking about it. Like, it's not talked about enough. 
we'll right. talk about it. And then they're like, shh, shh, don't tell anybody. Right. Don't, because tell anyone. I, <laughs> don't tell anyone because I think it's scary. I mean, it's scary. Again, it's one of yeah. those things that disrupts the system. It, 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 it forces a change because even without you know, collective bargaining or unions, we're, we're seeing a push towards, even without that, the shift of power to employees mm-hmm. is going to be massive right? over and the it's coming. of the next decade. Yes. Right. And it's coming sooner than people think. I mean, that's where, you know, it was, it was almost my, a part of the why that I also wrote the book was because I saw this as I started writing this book last November. So actually not even last November, November, 2022. So more than a year ago, when I started writing this book, I, that was kind of my spur to go, wait, okay. So we lost more than a million people to COVID in the U S we have lost baby boomers to retirement, right? There are consistently so many, like a very high number. I don't know what the, the daily rate is, but it's a very high number of baby boomers retiring every single day. And there are so many people with during COVID that had a disability with long COVID that are never returning to the workforce. So if you just take those three things, when I wrote the book and wrote this stat in the book, it was 4.5 million less people in the workforce than any of us had anticipated at that point, 4.5 million less people. And so since then, it has likely grown because there are more baby boomers retiring since then. And the other thing to note is that Gen Z doesn't have enough people in its generation to make up for the gap. Not even close. Not even close. And so there is, like you said, there's this thing where it's like, I see it. People that I know have seen it. We've talked about it. But it's like it's missing mainstream media. It's missing this big play because people, like you said, are just like, shh. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Yeah. It's a huge thing. But it's also like an indicator for me of like, okay, we now have the great timing of that silver lining, silver lining timing, right? To say, because of this, we now have the ability to actually make a fucking change in work because we are going to be the ones to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And companies are either going to listen or not have anyone to hire. And then they're going to go bankrupt because there's no one to do the job. Right. right. So it really is going to be like. TBT isn't going to do it. Right. They're not. Sorry. It's just not going to be exactly what you need it to be. And so yeah. it's at the end of the day, it's this like really interesting dynamic where I'm like, how are business leaders not seeing this? Right. And I think we find this a lot in HR and talent. Like we see the cycles coming. I'm not sure why none of the rest of you do, right? Because this has been the same cycles happening all the time. We all see it. But this thing where this is such a big change. And the other thing to think about during this is that, by the way, even though we're going to have way less people and Gen Z's doesn't have enough people in its generation to make up for it, they also are taking way less crap than any of the rest of us. Do. Yes. And so they're yes. also saying, oh, you want me to do these things in these seven hour, you know, interview processes and you want me to do what? Come to an office? No, thank you. I am out. Peace. I will go find another way to make money. And they are just saying bye to the way that we all know how to work. And they're finding other options. They're finding alternatives to make money. That's going to continue. Yes. So not only is there not enough people 
there are people fleeing the workforce on both sides. So you've got the baby boomers fleeing for retirement and you have Gen Z fleeing because they don't want to deal with it. And so the people holding it down right now are millennials. And so, you know, as a millennial, it's kind of interesting because I remember years back, you probably remember this too, Stephanie, where it was like, I would go to a, I wrote about this in the book. I will go to a conference and just hear the words about how bad millennials are just like continue uh-huh. to sit in a room and get bad mouth. And it's like, wait a minute, we are now going to be the ones literally holding down the workforce. So many of us are also like kind of opting out to do our own thing right. too. Right. Like that's what's bananas to me. Like millennials are like, yeah, uh, we did all this. We, pl- we tried. We tried. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I, I was at a, I was speaking about, you know, mental health at uh, a conference, uh, you know, last week, and we were talking about different expectations. And I always say, whenever anyone asks why, why trauma-informed workplaces now, I'm like, well, why not now? But also, mm-hmm. you know, twofold, our relationship with work changed because yep. of the COVID-19 pandemic, like full stop. It's yep. real. Everyone's relationship with work changed. In what way? Who knows? Everyone's is probably different, but everyone's relationship with work changed. And number two, Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Like I talked to this group and I was like, you guys are not prepared for Gen Z. Like you no. don't understand. Like you picked on millennials this whole time. This whole time. We've been in the workplace and we tried really, really hard to play by your rules. We were the bridge. We were the bridge. Yeah. We each tried really, really hard to play the game. Like we were in offices and we were there for 12 hour days. We, you know, would give out gold stars to companies because they had diversity and inclusion programs. Gen Z, not doing the same way. They're going to be like, oh, you have a diversity, equity, and inclusion program. Great. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. By the way, Explain to all me all the ways that you are incorporating DEIJ into every business decision. And when you can't right. show them, they're like, I'm out. Right. Oh, they are like, they're like, what are you doing? Absolutely not. Like right. they, they do not like the way millennials, I, I, millennials wanted to be yes. liked. They wanted yes. to do the corporate ladder thing. They wanted to, I think, and it's why you see so many stories about mm-hmm. millennials, like, oh, crap, I can't participate in the American dream. Right. Because we wanted to. We want yeah. to. We wanted to, you know, have the picket fence, the dog, mm-hmm. the 2.5 kids, however many it is. Yeah. And it very clearly became unattainable to yeah. uh, the vast majority of us for a variety of reasons. And two Just, recessions. Living through two recessions is part of it. <laughs> Listen, like I have had so many conversations when people like millennials are entitled. I'm like, yeah, you know, I was in high school and it was yes. you know September 11th, and then right. I graduated into a massive recession, right? And the like, just like, give us a break. So right. it's just like, give millennials a break. Gen Z is like, Gen Z is not there. Gen Z is like, we don't really care if you like right. us. We are, you know. The way they interact with technology is unbelievable. Right. Um, very mission driven. They're very yes. much mission driven. Yeah. Way more than they, we were. Very, like very creative in terms of like different career paths. 
And it is just wild to me when I will be talking, I will literally ask a group of people like, how is it easy is it for you to find talent? And they're like, oh my gosh, it's impossible. And then I'll be like, are you ready to recruit and retain Gen Z? And they look at me with like big pie size eyes. Like, oh my gosh, no. Like even ignoring all the other wonderful reasons we need to change our approach to work. Like jet, like even if your only business case is Gen Z, it's a hell of a business case. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it, if you, if you were like a smart business person, right. Why would you not want to figure out how to hire Gen Z? Because they're going to figure out technologically how to automate this stuff that no one wants to do anyway. Yes. They're going to help you with, guess what? Other Gen Zers, which is going to be the majority of the workforce in mm-hmm. a few years anyway, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why would you not want that? Why would you not want the creativity, the innovation and all that? Right. And it's, it's that it's also interesting to me because I always feel like every generation that came before us that we had seen and had interactions with always sort of, I don't want to say they, they talked down to the next generation, but they kind of did, right? Like it was yes. like, oh, yes. millennials are the worst, right? And and then you have people say, yeah. yeah. right? Like it was like every generation had to like prove themselves yeah. to the generation before that. Where I think millennials and Gen Zers are a little different is that mm-hmm. we are actually wanting to reach our hand back to say, yeah. we'll help you up. And can you teach us some things along the way? And it's this collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in our lifetimes we're seeing that happen. Yeah. And what is the beauty of that as we move forward? If we just take that one part of work and we just think about the dynamic of how much we can gain from the collaboration of millennials and Gen Z working together as opposed to the baby boomers continually trying to smush us down, what could we achieve? And so that even, even that dynamic to me is like, we are the first that we have seen generation to vastly say, we want to help Gen Z. And are you looking at Gen Z? And they're really creative and innovative and awesome. And you all should be looking to what they can do. That was not something that was done for us not from a majority of the baby boomers, maybe one here or there, right? But like not the majority. So I think even that shift and just how we think about generational, it's not, we're not coming against you. We're not butting heads. We're not taking your jobs. We are really working with Gen Z to say, how can we help you? And what can we learn from each other? What can we learn? I mean, we have, we're going to have the most generations in the workforce that we've ever had. Yeah. Five right now. Yeah. Yeah. And people are like collectively crapping their pants about it. And I mean, fair, yeah. the way we've approached it has not been great. No. <laughs> it's been pretty terrible as like the like little millennial that was like constantly shat on. Like, right. yes, not so little anymore, but like it's such an opportunity. Like it's yeah. I, I every time I'm talking with someone about generational differences. It's like, yeah, we have differences, but it's such an opportunity to leverage, you know, baby boomers who have Mm -hmm. all this experience. Mm -hmm. And then Gen Z that literally has lived their entire life Mm -hmm. with technology. And it's just like, what an amazing space to be in. 
But if we just move forward with the status quo, the, well, I had to do this. So you have to do this. I had to go into an office. So you right. have to go into an office. I, could, I couldn't take parental leave. So you can't take parental right. leave. Like if we move past that and move towards how can we work together to make this better for the future for work, but for just about everything, I think we get to a much better place. Yeah. I also think it's the only way Gen Z is going to stay engaged in the workforce yeah. in the way we need them to. Right. And it's yeah. interesting because, you know, as you, as I think about it, there are so many people that I've come into contact with that it's like, they don't understand that there's even a problem with work. Right. And I'm, I'm always just a little baffled by it. But the one question that gets them is I always ask, what about your kids or your grandkids or your friends, kids or grandkids? Do you want them to enter the same type of work in the same workforce that you do? And you know what the answer is hundred percent of the time? No, no. And then I say, so what's wrong with that? Why don't you want them to come, you know, come to work right now? And they're like, oh, well, right. Well, when you put it that way, they don't want that. And to me, that's such a glaring red button of we have to change this. Right. Yeah. Even for the people that say nothing's wrong with it, it's fine. When I ask that question, 100 percent of them say no. Then that's telling we have to change work. Yes. And yes. if we don't change it now, I don't know when the next chance we will we will be we will have to change it in this drastic way this quickly will be. Yeah. I also think if we don't change it in a meaningful and deliberate way, mm -hmm. we're going to kind of be cobbling yeah. some sort of like disaster airplane together. Like it oh, is yeah. going like it's already to a be... dumpster fire. Imagine yeah, it's just too. Yeah. <laughs> like all of a sudden organizations are like, wow, we can't figure out how to hire anyone and keep them on here. Let's use the same tools that we've had in our tool belt for hundreds of years, raise pay rates, offer retention, right. but like these things that, yeah, sure. Those are helpful and important tools that need to be part of the system. Redo the system. Like we're, it's just going to, it's going to be like the house where someone keeps building on a, a, a room and you're like, wait, what's happening? Like, this right. doesn't make any sense. This right. is just confusing, bad use of space. Right. Right. And it's, yeah. it's so, it's such a weird dynamic. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that in writing the book and talking to so many people, just again, from like the beta readers and the book reviewers is figuring out how all of these things connect, right? Like it does all come back to the status quo. And you'll, you'll see me say this in the book, and I've said it often since is the status quo just has to go, right? It has to go. We can't keep acting like it's serving anyone because to be honest, the people who think it's serving them, it's not actually serving them. They're just kind of, you know, in an illusion that it's serving them, but it's really not. I mean, disengagement is at very high levels, probably the highest levels that we've seen. Stress, workplace stress is at the highest levels we've ever seen in our, in our, in our time, in our, you know, lives. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Every year that we have these reports come out, it's worse and worse and worse and worse. How do we think this is magically going to change if there's not a huge shakeup? It's like going to the doc doctor and being like, well, I want to be have this perfect bill of health. 
but you change nothing about it. And you, you know, you don't exercise, you don't eat well, you don't take care of yourself, but then you just want this like mysteriously magical thing to happen to you. It's the same with work. You can't get to that healthy work situation without making drastic changes. Yeah. It's like workplaces just want to throw on like a pair of like yoga pants and say yes. you're healthy now. Like it's really, it doesn't do anything. It's or like, oh, wow, you went to Lululemon. Congratulations. Right. Right. You bought an expensive pair of yoga pants. Like so much of this performative work around making better workplaces. Like, I mean, that's basically what it is. I, I love that analogy. And it's just... I think so often too. I, I love the point you're making. It's not working for anyone because you it's know, not. right in the title of your book, you know, like the white patriarchy, right there. So yeah. white men, yeah, aren't benefiting really from the system either. I mean, they're no. benefiting the most, right? But there are systems that would serve them better, also. Correct. And I yeah. think a lot of the pushback is sometimes this: well, if I give up my slice of pie. Mm-hmm. Will I get a smaller slice of pie back? And it's the whole like equality isn't pie. Yeah. Like it's, it's it's not like this thing where you right. know you're gonna lose something. And I think I think that's so important. And and my favorite example around this conversation to like boil it down to something really really simple: parental leave. Yeah. How does parental leave? Better mm-hmm. support everyone. Well, if you're a woman, parental leave, and you decide to become a parent, oh, wow, you have additional support and resources. Maybe that's your time off. Maybe that's a spouse's time off. Mm-hmm. If you're a man, like, oh, wow, normalizing taking parental leave. Yeah. It's huge. Because I can tell you, like, and no one bats an eye, all the internal conversations I've had that everyone hopes I've forgotten, but I have them locked up tight here <laughs> in my brain. We all have them. Yeah. Parental leave. Like no one ever was complaining about a woman taking parental leave. But as soon as a man took more than two weeks, mm-hmm. it was like the building was on fire. Right. It was like this giant travesty. I'm like, what in the hell? Like. Right. Wait, and this it's also is, like we're we're now what? penalizing people for trying to be good parents and spouses, like partners. Is that really what we're here to do? Like this is it seems so ridiculous, right? It's it's bananas. Like I my brother, uh, you know, he has four kids and he has two kids right now that are just under two and basically, you know, a month old. I went and I spent time with them and I was like how does anyone do this? Like, <laughs> for real? Like, for how real. does anyone do this? And we consistently ask people to do it and, and provide virtually no support. Like, We're truly. also the only first world country that doesn't offer this, right? Like, how archaic do we have to get, y'all? Like, are we are we still like, you know going out into the forest and gathering our berries and no, like, come on. Like we have moved and evolved, but we have not evolved on this. And it seems like the most ridiculous thing, because if you think about it, it is literally about us continuing to populate our country. And, you know, why would we not support that? Like I just, like when you start to think about it, it's like, 
all of the people that are against parental leave, I'm just like, so you want to have no constituent constituents to to elect you later on? Like, is that what you want to do? Like, I don't understand. So it's it's this really weird dynamic when you really boil it's, it down. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's like the cause and effect, I think. I'm a very like big picture, long-term thinker. Nice. You know, I think you are the same. And so like today I read an article and it's about, you know, China and they're like, oh crap, we had this policy limiting right. the birth of children. And that's been around like the entirety of my life. And now China's like, oh my gosh, we don't have enough people to support our infrastructure. We don't yeah. have enough people to take jobs. We don't have people to take care of our aging population. And I mean, there's a very direct policy that right. supported this outcome. But right. when you look at the indirect policies or how we, you know, exist where it's very unaffordable to have childcare. We ask people to move and relocate for jobs. We're not having a policy where people, you know, yeah. can't have children or shouldn't, but it's just like everything about this supports not being able to do it or not being able to do it in the way, you know, some people want. And it's just right. like, well, and I just, I, I think I posted on our friend Cassandra Bibilia's post today on LinkedIn around this. And when I had my son, I had a C-section. My son is nine. He'll be 10 this year. And it's, you know, I had major abdominal surgery. It's major abdominal yes. surgery. I wasn't even allowed to drive for two months. Uh -huh. Like my doctor would not even let me drive for two months in it. And then our son didn't sleep through the night until about nine months in. So I was literally only getting two hours of sleep at a time. A person, and by the way, I took eight or nine months off because I was able to at the time, Yeah. but I was not even a functioning human being during that time. I literally felt like a zombie. I was not even a functioning human being to have had to also then work and use my brain and make decisions. I could barely make a decision as to what I was going to feed myself that day. Like as a human, barely able to keep up the dynamics to keep myself and my child alive for nine months. And then we expect women to come back to work in less than half that time. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any sense in a business perspective because you want a person in that dynamic to make business decisions for you. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. I wouldn't want to make any decisions. I would be like, don't listen to anything I say. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, just it's like, it's like, like one of my favorite concepts I get to talk about it, around trauma informed workplace is this concept of institutional betrayal. And it is, I think it just, the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, this comes up a lot in the workplace. Like, we yeah. are underestimating how much this comes up. But when I think about, the support or lack thereof when it comes mm -hmm. to parental leave, it comes to caregivers. I mean, that's yes. another area where people yeah, are taking all the baby care boomers, we're caregiver roles. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, well, here's FMLA, this 12 weeks of unpaid federally protected leave that is great. But when you are it's using the bare minimum, yeah. the legal requirement is the support you're providing for your team. Like you are not creating loyalty. And, no. and the concept is like bereavement leave, right? Like bereavement yes. leave. Like how in any other dynamic, like how are you going to say that three days is good? Like 
if I, you know, there's been so many places where I've been at and led teams where, for instance, someone's partner died, someone's spouse died. Do we really expect people to be okay for three in three days? Three days. That's where we're giving humans. That's what we're like. That's it. That's what most bereavement leaves have. The other piece is that like best friends aren't typically included in bereavement leaves. I don't know about you, but if my best friend passed away, oh, I would be inconsolable for quite a long time, just like I would be if it was my spouse or a family member. But like when I say a long time, it's going to be like months. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think too, I mean, really let's look at that scenario for, I mean, there are so many iterations of this scenario and and even just looking at it from a relatively privileged scenario of, you know, a white collar job, Mm -hmm. you have a spouse, a significant other pass away Mm -hmm. unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the financial implications around that. There are financial implications around that. You are probably not in a space where you are not worried about your finances because Mm -hmm. you're going from one, two incomes to one income. Yep. And then so you do not have easily accessible supports in the workplace. So you go, I've got to get back to work. Mm -hmm. And then that grief that you have not had the opportunity to navigate through in a human way, right? Like there is no normal way, but just in a human way, like a regular human being, right? Maybe that pops up six months later. Maybe that pops up eight months later or two years later, because you were never able to process that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're a performance issue, like, Mm -hmm. or something else is going on. Right. And here's this thing in your life that happened where you did not have any space or supports. Mm -hmm to actually process and move through it. And I mean, sure, that's a very specific example, but I think it's a really realistic example. Yeah, and it happens more than people think it does. Yeah. It really does. And it's it's just like, that's a very small piece. And what I kept coming back to in the book too is these things, doing work right, really is fairly simple. And... The, the, what I mean by that is we really forget how to be humans when we walk inside this illusion of work. It's like a veil, like a little, like, like a little Alice in Wonderland door we, we walk through and it's a different world, right? We forget how to be humans. Yeah. We forget how to be humans when it comes to feedback. Like we can do it in our lives, but when it comes to work, it's hard and it's weird and it's like kind of frustrating. It's it's difficult, right? We forget how to be humans when people have children or adopt children or have family to take care of. We forget how to be humans when people close to us pass away or need help or need support. We forget to be humans when our own mental health needs some caregiving. Yeah. We somehow forget how to be humans. It's like we shed our humanness when we step into work. And one of the big questions that I have in the book is why? Why do we do that? Why do we feel like we need to do that? Who is that helping? Because it's not helping any of us. Really, it's hurting all of us. And so this is kind of my point of the status quo is really not helping everyone because it's not. And I think we even talked about last time during our, our last podcast around you and mentioned there was a great data point around white men 
expressing mental health concerns in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. It's not helping the group that it was set up to help. Yeah. Right. And so if it's not even doing that, why is it there? Why are we doing the things in the same way? Right. And so it's it's this whole thought around we need to just stop acting like we're not humans, embrace that we are and we can do things so much better if we are able to do that. If you think even about leadership and vulnerability, right, a lot of leaders and you've probably met these leaders in your experience, too. You meet these leaders who are so buttoned up and act like they have everything together and they're trying to be perfect. No one believes they're actually perfect. They don't. You really don't. But it sets this really hard precedent for other people that's unattainable. And right. then it's it's not allowing for vulnerability to be expressed. It's not allowing for humanness to be expressed. And actually, if you think about it, it's more of like a fear tactic than a compassion tactic. And what happens then is that it it doesn't move forward people in the right way. People who report to those buttoned up leaders are actually just fearful and they're still really rattling with that fight or flight sort of mentality in their own brains because it's fear based. Mm -hmm. And we act like that's the way that leaders are supposed to be. And it's, again, all an illusion. It's an illusion that they're buttoned up. It's an illusion that they're perfect. It's all an illusion. And we are basing so much of what makes work work on illusions. And it's like these these made up things, right? Like even the word professional, the word professionalism, a made up illusion. Do we really think that suits make us more intelligent? No. And it is... It is. It's an illusion. It is this, you know, how can we get as close to possible this cookie cutter idea of what a leader is supposed to look like? Whatever you want to call it, professionalism, executive presence, let my eyeballs roll out of their as I say that. But like, it is this idea. And it, again, it doesn't serve anyone, but it Mm -hmm. also certainly does not serve individuals who do not look right. Like you cannot, I've been talking a lot about self-acceptance. It's unintentionally my word of 2024, but like self, part of self-acceptance is accepting the things you cannot change about yourself. Mm -hmm. You cannot change your racial identity. Right. Like, and if your racial identity doesn't fit the impression of what a leader is or should be like, that is that's some fucked up stuff. Like if you yeah. really think about it and, and you like know, everyone is basing look, this off of stuff. No one can, can help. No one at, can help. You're like, I sorry, white men, you can't help it either. You were just born into that privilege and you did nothing to get it. You know what I mean? Like you were just born into it. Happenstance. And even, I mean, white, I, I feel like you see it really, really well with white women in positions yeah. of power yep. in corporate America because white women can do a lot to sort of shape shift themselves into this illusion, into this idea of what is professionalism, what is executive presence. And it's not serving those women either. I think it's, gosh, this is such an old story, but remember Marissa Meyer and how she took two weeks off after she gave birth to a child. And then also like she... Had like a daycare was, in her office. <laughs> yeah. And then was like lambasted and yeah. like everything was her fault as like, you know, Yahoo. Yeah. Like 
crumbled to the ground. And it's like, you see these things happen over and over again. And it's like, yeah, I try, like I said, like the millennial, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to do the things. And then I got to the point, I was like, wait, I am never going to be able to do these things and change what I think is change. Yeah. Because even when I get to the space, right. Those same expectations, that same box we need to, you know, fold down is there in the way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so important. And and that's, again, back to Gen Z. That's why I get excited about them because they're like, nah, I'm not going to over here. I don't think so. Like, we're not going to participate. Just like they don't want to be managers. And like, that's going to become a real problem here in the next five years that no one in Gen Z wants to manage anybody. Like, these are like kind of ticking time bombs. Yeah. And it's interesting that like, it's no, like like we said at the beginning, why aren't people talking about this more? Right. Like this is, it's, it, when I was reading the numbers and I thought, okay, now's a good time, right. To start this. Yeah. I was like, what? Like, this is, this should be on the news every day. Right. Like this, what is happening? We're going to run out of people to work in the companies that exist today. Yes. But on the other side of that, sometimes that I'm like, well, kind of, you know, good because some of those companies that don't treat people well and don't pay attention will go bankrupt. And so when I say in the book, your business will not last, I'm not just being hyperbolic. I am saying your business will not last. It won't last. Yeah. It will last. It's got, if you don't adjust, it's going to go away. It's, again, it's a concept of institutional betrayal. There's that betrayal where you are connected to an organization, to an identity, to a community, and then you're not treated the way you would be expected or you're betrayed in some way. That's a separate psychological injury that does harm. But the flip of that, when you can actually treat people well, Mm -hmm. when you can provide them the right support, when you can showcase loyalty, yeah. you create incredible loyalty and affinity oh, yeah. within your workplace. I used to say to people, because I've always been kind of, hey, if an organization isn't loyal to you, why are you going to be loyal to them? Mm-hmm. Like if someone is going to not give you feedback, pass you over promotions, mm-hmm. have a hostile or toxic work environment, why don't you leave? Yeah, and she move on over to the next thing. And I, I always got a lot of grief for that in my career. Not as much anymore, thankfully. But mm-hmm. why are you loyal to an organization that is not loyal to you? And yeah. I think organizations reevaluating that. And instead of being in a space where they expect that loyalty, yeah, I think they now understand that cannot be an expectation. Yeah. And shift to creating a real relationship that is reciprocal that is beyond just i pay you so right that's the relationship it right is and it's that. like it's also weird that we think about it in that way too right like with it's forgetting how to be human when we go into work in what other human relationship does that ever work none none yet we think it somehow does when businesses have 75 percent of you know, what they need. And we as employees only have 25%. How long do we think that's going to work for in a marriage that doesn't work in a friendship that doesn't work? Like it never works. And that's what I mean by we're, 
we're missing the humanity in work. And we really need to get back to that. And I really think, like, as you mentioned, sort of on the flip side, the organizations that are doing this now, and there are way too few, by the way, 99% of organizations are not thinking in this way, and they really need to move quickly to be thinking in this way. But there are a few that are thinking about it in the right way of creating these spaces, prioritizing people, giving resources and thoughtfulness to how they're treating people, what they're setting up at work, how they're supporting them. Do you know how much more zeros are going to be on their bottom line than every other business? And by the way, if you're a competition to someone doing this, you're going to be extinct. So if you are smart business leaders, you would shift quicker than any other business. So the people who are really digging their heels in, really not wanting to change work are really just horrible business people because they also just can't see this and they can't see the change in the labor market supply and demand. They can't see that doing this is a competitive advantage. They, in my mind, I'm like, well, if you can't see that and you really just want to dig your heels in, when you're on the bankruptcy in bankruptcy court, I'm going to tell you I told you so because there it's not like these stats, this data hasn't been out there with that. We haven't talked about this. Right. It's It's there. It's not like that's what's so interesting is, you know, we talk about changing the workplace. We talk about well-being, mental health, Mm -hmm. trauma informed workplaces. And you still get I still get the like, oh, where's the data? Like, (laughs) oh, my God. I'm like. No, this isn't that. Like, this is real. Like, there are real, the pretty significant points of data pointing to this being real important, real facts. And, right. you know, gosh, I've, I've worked in the construction industry for many of the years that I've worked. And the entire time, my first, you know, professional, air quotes, internship was with a construction company. I did a project because there weren't going to be enough people to work construction. Mm-hmm. And wow, we've got to figure out and solve that problem. Spoiler alert, construction still hasn't solved that problem. Right. But now that problem is across every industry. Yep. And it's instead of people going, oh, AI is going to steal your job. How do we work with AI to better support our work workforce, our workplace? And enhance that experience for everyone because, oh, wow, there aren't enough people to do these jobs. So it is just, it is wild. It is so interesting to me. And I mean, I know you are doing, you have the book. Yes. You are doing all of this amazing work. So obviously we are talking to people who care deeply about the workplace being better for everyone. (laughs) So. If folks want to get involved, want to learn more, want to do more, yeah. you know, where can they start? How can they partner with you yes. for this revolution of work? <laughs> so, yes, thank you for asking me that. So there's a couple of things. One is always call Fike & Co. if you need help, if you need that fractional leader. We have done this many times and set many organizations up for success in the right ways that years later, they've come back to us and said, oh my gosh, thank goodness you had us do this. So if that's you, call call us, DM us, find us on the website. It's F-I-K-E-A-N-D-C-O.com. But for the revolution of work, for me, I wanted 
the book to be the first part of an impact maker. And what I mean by that is I want it to acknowledge what's wrong. I want it to say what's broken. I want us to get commonality on the problem and to name it and to talk about it and then move forward together on making an impact into inspiring a movement. So for me, I wanted to also think about, sure, I can work with four, you know, four clients at a time and be fractional CPO at four of those clients, but I'm only able to 4X myself. How am I going to help create this movement to actually shake up work and drastically change it? Not just the future of work, which I think is just um, HR spin for doing the same shit and doing nothing differently. Well, to be honest, there's too many fucking people talking about future work and they don't do anything differently. Yes. We yes. need an entire breakdown, an entire shakeup of the whole freaking structure. And the book for me was, how do I get people tuned into this problem to say, yep, I see it. I understand it. I feel validated. I feel seen and heard. And then I want everyone to come together to figure out how we consistently push the same message forward together and in at the same time in our own corners of the world, make those changes, start those ripple effects, push those boundaries of the status quo. And together, if we focus on the same things at the same time and getting the message out, we will create a movement to where there is millions of us dedicated to changing how we all work. And so that is my, that's my goal is for the book to be the spurring of that. So how you, how do we do that? There's a couple ways. There's a think tank that I'm putting together to help this so that we have commonality, common messages that we put out the same time. And then also I'm doing retreats where people are gathering together to not just continue to have those voices, those thoughts, those people at the table, but to create Think about and create ways that we can all move forward again together and in our own small pieces of the world to make this better. So this is not a me running this process. This is going to be very much a democratic. I want lots of perspectives, lots of lived experiences together, but I will be leading the charge on let's talk about this. Let's talk about how we change performance reviews. Let's talk about how we change core values. Let's talk about how we change compensation and consistently talking about what are those changes and how do we dismantle the status quo? Oh, I love it. I am so excited, Anessa. And, you know, for those of you listening in the podcast notes, we've got links to Fike Co., Anessa's LinkedIn page, which if you are not following Anessa on LinkedIn, <laughs> what are you doing with your life? And then also links to the book, Yes. And then to the think tank as well. So awesome. there are so many amazing ways to get involved. Anessa, there is so much more I want to talk about with you. I am sure we would love to have you back on the podcast again sometime Anytime, soon. anytime. I love it. Thank, Thank you, you so much, so much <laughs> for all your work. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. And for all of you who joined us and listened in. Thank you so much. And until next time, be well.